It was the summer of 2005, and members of a church weren't speaking to one another. I heard a pastor describe what it was like. The church beautification team had decided to move forward with controversial plans to recarpet the sanctuary. Some donors didn't want carpeting in the sanctuary, saying it wasn't appropriate for worship. Other members didn't mind the carpeting, but they thought red was preferable to blue. The blue carpet people weren't talking to the red carpet people, and the no carpet people were ready to pack up and leave. The, uh, one staff member's wife would turn her head whenever one deacon's wife passed by, and the deacon's wife would do likewise. Accusations were made against the deacons that the deacons that the decision to recarpet the sanctuary had been railroaded, that the beautification team had been packed. One woman stormed out of a meeting in rage. There were things that were said that ought not to have been said. There were feelings hurt. It was a stew of selfishness, critical spirits, pride, gossip, worldliness, divisiveness. Church got nasty. The Christians were tearing each other apart. Seven days later, on August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina's storm surge flooded and destroyed the church building. The Lord had roared. The Christians stopped fighting about the carpeting. The Hebrew prophet Amos speaks to Israelites who had fallen very, very far from the justice and love and loyalty of God. The victims of their privileged lifestyle were many. And through the prophet Amos, the word comes, the lion roars, he says. And that roar is a warning of impending judgment. Judgment from God at the hands of the armies of Assyria. Anglican Old Testament scholar J. Alec Matir passed away last August. In his commentary on the prophet Amos, he writes this. He says, Affluence, exploitation, and the prophet motive were the most notable features of the society which Amos observed and in which he worked. The rich were affluent enough to have several houses apiece, chapter 3, verse 15, to go in rather ostentatiously for very expensive furniture, 6-4, and not deny themselves any bodily satisfaction, chapter 3, 4, and 6. On the other hand, the poor were really poor and shamelessly exploited. He says they suffered from property rackets, from legal rackets, and from business rackets. The defenseless individual with no influence came off worst at every single instance. When the poor could not contribute to the lifestyle of the rich, they were simply ignored and left for broken. Money-making and personal covetousness ruled everything. The men lived for their offices, the women lived for excitement, and the rulers lived for frivolity. It's against this backdrop, the decadence, inequality and injustice of the church of ancient Israel, that the lion of the tribe of Judah roars. I'm going to read from Amos chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 5. Follow along with me. 
the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, the king of Israel, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Mount Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aden and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden, the people of Aram, will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. That's slavery. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortress. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Akron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not hold back my wrath because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. It's the slave trade. Disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon Taman that will consume the fortress of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not hold back my wrath, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabah that will consume her fortresses. Amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day, her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortress of Kirioth. Moab will go down in great tumult. Amid war crimes and the blast of the trumpet, I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says. For three sins of Judah, even for four. I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. 
because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods of their ancestors that they followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortress of Jerusalem. What is God saying? It's a sevenfold judgment against seven different peoples because of the injustice and the cruelty and the oppression through which they built their own prosperity. What is God saying? He's saying, I see what has been done. I hear the cries of the oppressed. I hear the voice of the people sold into slavery. I hear the voice of the victims. Look at the injustice that's described here. Uh, You've got acts of cruelty and barbarity in the course of military campaigns. You've got slave trading and trafficking in populations, putting commercial profit above human welfare. You've got breaking of commitments of pledges, lack of integrity, hatred of other people, anger with its judgmentalism and its poison and its bitterness and inflaming bile. In verse 11, you've got atrocities against the helpless, against the weakest of people, the expectant mother, the child she carries, all in the name of ambition, expansion, growing larger and stronger and more successful and more powerful and more respected and more honored. They were desecrating the bodies of the dead in chapter 2, verse 1. And none of this had escaped the eye of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I saw all of this, the endless self-pleasing of people who put themselves and their interests above the needs of others and above the needs of the weak when they use people and discard them when they're no longer of use. God raises his voice, the prophetic voice of warning to his people, a warning of impending judgment. The Assyrians are coming. They will slaughter you, and I, the Lord, have my hand in this. It will be just for what has been done. I have seen what has been done. Come to me. Reconsider. Turn back to me. Be forgiven and be changed. If you go to the Dominican Republic, there is a statue that hovers above the city. I think we've got a slide of that. Uh, It's a statue of a missionary on the island of Hispaniola, which the Dominican Republic shares with the nation of Haiti. The early 16th century, as the Spanish colonized the island, the crown granted what was called the encomienda system to the Spanish conquistadors, whereby they would be given a land grant, and with the land, they would also gain title to the labor of the Indians who lived upon it, effectively enslaving people, creating ripe opportunity for abuses of the most horrifying kind. And on December 21st of 1511, it was the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Dominican missionary Antonio de Montesinos preached to the conquistadors and to their families. The message was an exposition criticizing the practices of the Spanish colonial encomienda system and pointing out the abuses of the Taino Indian people on the island of Hispaniola. 
This was only 19 years after Christopher Columbus had landed on the island. Spain had started to colonize it. Columbus's son was the governor and was there with all of the other Spanish colonists. And the Montesinos listed the injustices of the indigenous people that they suffered from at the hands of the Spanish colonists. He spoke to the gathered colonists and he said this. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In order to make your sins known to you, I have mounted this pulpit. I who am the voice of Christ crying in the wilderness of this island... And therefore it behooves you to listen to me, not with indifference, but with all of your heart and with your senses, for this voice will be the strangest, the harshest, and the hardest, the most terrifying voice that you have ever heard or expected to hear. The voice of the Lord declares that you are in mortal sin. You live in it and you will die in it by reason of the cruelty and tyranny that you are practicing on these innocent people. Tell me. By what right or justice do you hold these Indians in such cruel and horrible slavery? By what what right do you wage such detestable uh, wars on these people who lived mildly and peacefully in their own lands, where you have consumed infinite numbers of them with unheard murders and desolations? Why do you so greatly oppress and fatigue them, not giving them enough to eat or caring for them when they fall ill from your excessive labor demands? so that they die, or rather are slain by you, so that you may extract and acquire more gold every day. What care do you take that they receive religious instruction and come to know their God and Creator, or that they be baptized, hear the Word of God preached, or observe holidays and Sundays? Are they not men? Do they not have rational souls? Are you not bound to love them as you love yourselves? How can you lie in such profound and lethargic slumber? Be sure that in your present state, he said, you can no more be saved than the Moors or Turks who do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. He finished his sermon, and Montesinos left the pulpit, confronted by angry gazes from the Spaniards in attendance. One member of the congregation, Pedro de Renteria, felt grieved and moved by what was preached and asked if he could confess his sins, but only one. The sermon outraged the conquistadors, including Admiral Columbus and other representatives of the king. According to Las Casas, he says, they agreed that they at least would go and reprimand and frighten this preacher and the others if indeed they did not punish him outright as a scandalous person who is spreading a new teaching never before heard and condemning everyone and speaking against the king and his dominion in the Indies. That afternoon, the conquistadors went to the house of the Dominicans in Santo Domingo to present their complaints to the superior. The superior tried to calm them. He listened patiently to their charges, and he explained that all of the Dominicans had approved the sermon's message, and all of them stood by everything that was said. Nevertheless, the colonists insisted they would have one more Sunday to fix the message and get it right. The following Sunday, the church was packed for Christmas Mass. Everyone was there. Montesinos again went into the pulpit. And without tempering his passion, he preached the exact same message again, calling the conquistadors to repentance in Christ. The lion roars, Amos says. God saw what was being done, 
An injustice ignored is an injustice condoned. And so he raised up a voice from his people to see it, to call it what it was, and to call people to turn back to the Lord. The initial result of the protests was that the friars in Santo Domingo were sent packing back to to Spain to give an account to the king for their evil actions against his rule. Ultimately, the king heard from the Montesinos what was happening. Within a few years, the encomiendo system was dismantled and the Indians were set free. The lion roared and someone listened. 200 years later, I think we've got another slide. As George Whitfield, the Anglican clergy member and preacher, visited the colonies in America in February 1740, George Whitfield's friend Benjamin Franklin published three letters from the Reverend Mr. G. Whitfield in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. The first two letters dealt with Whitfield's concerns over unbiblical teachings in the Anglican hierarchy, but the third letter was addressed to the inhabitants of Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina. And in it, he registered his concern for the enslaved in the southern colonies and the treatment that they received at the hands of people who claimed to be Christian. He writes, as I lately passed through your provinces, I was sensibly touched with a fellow feeling for the misery of the poor slaves, Whitfield wrote. God has a quarrel with you for your abuse and cruelty of the poor slaves. And he continued, should they ever rise up in arms against their owners, and that would mean incredible bloodshed says, pray it never happened. He says, yet should such a thing be permitted by God's providence, all good men must acknowledge that that judgment would be just. The lion roared. God said, I see what is being done. He hears the cries of the oppressed. We didn't listen. Blood is still being shed. Don't say we weren't warned. God says, I see what is being done. Also understand who it is we're dealing with when the lion roars. Keep that picture. He says, the lion roars from Judah. That, that's how God, your creator, your savior, if you're a Christian, wants you to picture him. God's saying, don't picture me as some harmless old man with a beard. I want you to picture me as a lion, as a predator, a cat with claws, with fangs, with muscles who could take you or anyone else out. Proverbs thirty thirty says, the lion, which is the mightiest among the beasts, does not turn back before anyone. God is a lion. He roars. It's, the, it's not the only time God says this. He speaks through the prophet Hosea and says, For I will be a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one will rescue you from my hands. 
Hosea 13.8, I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Even in the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as this same lion, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, the lion roars. You know, you picture a lion at the zoo. And that's a lion that's raised in captivity. But imagine a a lion that that wasn't fed with baby bottles when it was a little cub. It it was never adapted to being around humans. It's completely wild. And picture how that lion rips apart an animal at mealtime. And picture a lion that has escaped that is absolutely wild. You're dealing not with carcasses, but with live animals. Picture it taking down an antelope, ripping it to shreds with the faintest effort. There is a fierceness in God. He says, understand what you're dealing with. You're dealing not with a little kitten. You're dealing with a lion, and it's a lion that roars. A lion's roar can travel up to five miles. It's a warning very often saying, you are transgressing my territory. You are in a danger zone. Your purposes are against my purposes, and I am warning you. The Lord roars. Got a video here. It's just like eight seconds. A little sound, I think. That's a roar. Now imagine that's five miles away, and you hear that. That's a warning telling you. Be very, very careful and reconsider your next steps. Look at the warning of impending doom here. The Assyrian army is on its way. The Lord roars. Remember, I am Yahweh, the Lord. This is the Lord, that name Yahweh. It's in all caps in an English language Bible usually because it's, it's that name that God gave to Moses when Moses encountered the burning bush. And he was afraid. It was a theophany. God was there. And God said, Moses, take off your sandals because this, this, the ground you stand on is hallowed ground. And he gives Moses a mission. And Moses says, but who are you? Who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. Yahweh, the personally disclosed name of the Lord, the one who in the wilderness was a pillar of fire at night, a, a cloud of smoke in the daytime, a God who is holy, who is unlike us, who cannot be measured. You even just think of the immensity of the cosmos. I think we've got another slide here. Uh, you know, this is just the Milky Way seen at night. And you look and you see all of the stars. And I'm not in the sciences. My doctorate is in historical theology. Uh, But uh, from what I've read on Wikipedia, judging by photons that have traveled 45 billion light years to reach us, the visible cosmos is apparently 90 billion light years across. Some mathematical models suggest that it's actually 250 times that size because the 90 billion light years across is just what we can observe. Uh, It is narrow, the cosmos, and flat like a tortilla. It is bounded edges, we think. Space doesn't seem to go on forever, and because it doesn't seem to have a curve, it doesn't wrap around. There's an outside to it. There's an edge. And within it, this expanding, indeed, accelerating expansion of the cosmos, Uh, four billion years old, starting with some sort of singularity, there are 10 billion galaxies, 
with perhaps an average of 100 billion stars in each of the 10 billion galaxies, which means there are 5 billion trillion stars. And the Bible says that God is bigger than all of that, that he exists outside of space and time, that he sustains all of that moment by moment through his powerful word, Jesus. And the Jews alone believed that this was the only God, the creator of the cosmos, this intelligence, unknown and unknowable, except that he reaches into us within the bubble. This was the one who had promised to be their God, a God through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Do you realize what we're dealing with here? I don't think we really understand that if this is all true, we're dealing with something that's kind of a little bit scary. Um, you know, I've shared the story before. You know, imagine, if you will, that you meet some guy, moves in next door to you. You're trying to develop friendship, relationship, be a good neighbor to him. And so uh, the two of you decide you're going to take a little trip down to Johnson shut-ins. How many of you have been to Johnson shut-ins? It's really nice. You know, there are rocks and water. It's almost like part of it's almost like a little canyon. And you go there, and you get out of the car, and you're kind of showing them around, and it's really cool. And he says, this is really beautiful. Have you ever seen the Grand Canyon? And you're like, no, I haven't. And he says, well, watch this. And he puts his arms up, and he says something in maybe Latin or maybe Hebrew. You're not sure. Some really ancient language. And suddenly the rock walls expand wider and wider, and the ground drops off beneath you. And, and before you, there is a gorge four miles wide and 100 miles across. And down at the bottom is a raging river. And you look at him, and you're puzzled, and you see in the blacks of his eyes the swirl of the galaxies within them. And the question that you then have to answer is, do you want to get back in the car with him? Understand what it is we're dealing with. The Lord roars. Understand, he sees. But we're dealing with something far larger than we can get a handle on. It's described in this in these prophecies of judgment, these oracles, as a fire. Seven times he's described as this consuming fire. Seven times the fire of God's judgment will come upon the peoples. In chapter 1, verse 4, and in verse 7, and in verse 10, and in verse 12, and in verse 14, and in 2, 2, and in, in verse 5 of chapter 2, seven times he is the consuming fire of judgment. Like the fire that consumed Nadab and Abihu, the priests in the Old Testament who dealt lightly with the presence of the Lord God of Abraham. You realize what we're dealing with here. Now, some of you look at this and you think, gosh, you know, Greg, I'm not sure how such a God, a God of judgment, a God of justice, a God who, who punishes people, I'm not sure how that can be a God of love. I'm not sure how that God can be good. It's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, when, when the Lucy hears that Aslan, the king of the wood, they're going to go see the king, they're going to go see Aslan, and she hears that he's a lion, and she kind of freaks out. She asks, is he a safe lion? And Mr. Beaver responds saying, oh, goodness, no, he's not safe, but he is good. How can such a God be good. And, and I want to suggest to you that it is mainly the privileged, the wealthy, the successful, the comfortable who raise this question. The oppressed don't raise this question. 
victims don't have a problem with a God who will pay back evil. It's only those who have shielded themselves through their wealth and privilege and access that seem to have an emotional problem. If you're the victim, then a God who judges injustice, a God who hears, who looks cruelty in the face and brings vengeance is a God uh, that of, of absolute goodness in the face of our evil. Absolute justice. Indeed, his justice is a mercy. In a French village in August of 1944, villagers had been sequestered in the town square, and around them were officers of Hitler's dreaded SS, Hitler's feared henchmen. Villagers suspected of links to the resistance are being denounced and then tied up and shot. There's one elderly woman on the edge of the crowd. She's wearing a faded blue dress and she's screaming and weeping. Villagers are having to hold her back as her only grandson, Roger, 14 years old, is blindfolded. Ropes tie and cut into his wrists like knives. And then the village falls short in absolute silence as they await the inevitable. But in that silence, there is a sound in the distance. First, it's a whisper, and then it's louder. The clanking of belts, the sound of metal on metal, the sound of machinery. Nazi guards exchange fearful glances as they scamper to grab their weapons and grab their packs and get out before the first Allied tanks crest the hill. And as the Nazis seek to run, Allied marksmen already have them in their sight. If you're the SS, it's a story of judgment. But if you're that elderly woman in the faded blue dress... It is a story of salvation, of justice, of mercy, and of absolute goodness. Why do you think it's only the wealthy and the comfortable cultures that have a problem with the notion of a God who punishes injustice? Who made the clothes that we're wearing? How much do they get paid? What injustices have they faced? What abuse? See, it's easy for the privileged to despise justice. But from the vantage point of the victim of the underprivileged, of the oppressed, of the weak. It's different. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf bore witness to human cruelty in the genocide of the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. He saw firsthand how powerless uh, and, and worthless was the notion of this universally nonviolent, non-judgmental God that was so popular among theologians in Western Europe. And in Wolf's exclusion and embrace, he argues that peaceful nonviolence only makes sense if there is a God who ultimately judges injustice, evil, and cruelty. He writes, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with men in the West. To the person inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering your lecture in a war zone. Imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? 
I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God himself. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburban home, he writes, for the birth of such a thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, he writes, that idea will invariably die. Like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, he writes, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. See, God's goodness drives his passion for justice. Put yourself in the place of the victim, in the place of the slave, in the place of the Taino Indian, in the place of that elderly grandmother in 1944 in a French village. In Amos's day, this divine judgment would come after centuries of patience by God. He says for three sins, even for four, he doesn't judge the first and the second century, only when it gets to 300 years. Understand the wrath of a sin-hating God as he hears the cries of our victims. It should give us pause Understand what it is that we're dealing with. He's a lion, and the lion roars. And so where is there hope? There is hope because the lion roars. And his roar is a call to enter into his grace, to change direction, to consider differently. With every warning of judgment in the Bible, there's always an implicit call to flee to him and to be reconciled. As the apostles said to the crowds when they said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, this was the roar of the Lord through his prophet Hosea, who said that the Lord will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling to him from the west. The roar is an invitation, a call to come home to the lion who is not safe, but who is absolutely good. Revelation chapter 5 speaks of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the very lion who roared, and says that this is our God. The lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb that was slain for those of us who have not lived lives of justice and faithfulness to our God. See, for this to have any power in your life, for it to have power to actually reconcile you to God daily, not just theoretically, the power to change you, for it to have the power to to transform how you relate to the weak, how you relate to your spouse, to your children, to your enemy, how you relate to the poor, how you relate to people of other races or other socioeconomic backgrounds or different cultural perspectives. You first have to put yourself in the place of the oppressed, in the place of those who spiritually are in a bad place, weak and poor and helpless. And then you see the lion of the tribe of Judah who laid down his life to rescue you. That's the power to melt your heart. That's the power to move you to care, move you to weep, move you to rearrange your life according to the God's priority of justice and mercy. 
as the Lord himself is the king of the wood, the lion of the tribe of Judah, when you see your own helplessness in your sin and your brokenness, and you see the lion of the tribe of Judah who holds all the galaxy in his hands, and you see that lion slain for you, that alone will enable you to see the beauty of justice and the beauty of the God who is just, the beauty of a God who dies for his enemies, who so desperately need saving. God says, I see what has been done. The lion roars, understand what it is you're dealing with, and hope will be found when you understand This lion is also the Lamb of God who laid down his life for you when you had offended him so greatly and he did it out of his love for you. In his Christian allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis describes how Aslan, the king of the wood, the lion, makes a deal with the witch. Edmund, the most obnoxious of the humans in the series, was guilty of treason. And he would certainly die at the hands of the witch. This was justice. It had to be. It could not be otherwise. It was what he deserved. And the lion summons the witch. And the lion speaks with the witch herself. And he offers her an alternative arrangement. As soon as the witch leaves, Aslan tersely announces to Peter, Susan, and Lucy that they must camp somewhere else tonight. He doesn't explain why they have to move or what happened between him and the witch, but as the day progresses, Aslan becomes more more despondent. He even hints to Peter that he may not be present at that final battle between his forces and those of the witch. The camp becomes filled with gloom and trepidation. And that night, Susan and Lucy worry about Aslan. They can't sleep. They realize that Aslan has left the pavilion, and they quickly leave to go and find him. And Susan and Lucy spot Aslan, and they run to him, and they beg to follow. And Aslan reluctantly agrees as long as Susan and Lucy leave when he tells them that it's time to leave. As the three travel together, Aslan becomes increasingly depressed and apathetic. He pleads for human contact so that he can alleviate his loneliness. At last, they reach the stone table, and Aslan bids the children to leave, but instead, Susan and Lucy hide behind a bush. Lucy and Susan watch as hundreds of monstrous creatures surround Aslan and the stone table. These are horrible creatures from mythology. The darkest realms of the imagination at the center of these awful creatures is the witch and The witch expects Aslan's arrival, and as she tells her servants to tie him up, at first they're hesitant, but when Aslan does not resist, though he is strong and fierce, they are thrilled to oblige. They take those ferocious furry paws, so massive and feline, the paws through which Narnia itself had been made, through which its magic came to be, they tie them up. The witch's servants humiliate Aslan further. They shave off his mane. They put a muzzle on his snout. They kick him. They jeer at him. And Aslan does not protest. 
the servants finish binding Aslan to the stone table, and the witch approaches him with her stone knife. The witch tells Aslan that he is lost. The witch says, I will kill you instead of, Admin, uh, instead of Edmund, as we agreed, and that sacrifice will appease the deep magic. The witch, however, further explains that once Aslan is dead, there will be nothing to prevent her from killing Edmund too, as well as the other three children. And once Aslan is gone, the witch will be queen of Narnia forever. And Lucin and Susie cover their eyes so they don't see the witch as she murders Aslan, the lion, the king. Immediately following Aslan's murder, the witch's forces leave to prepare for battle. Aslan's dead body remains on the stone table. Susan and Lucy come out from their hiding spot and they cry over, over his body, shamed and humiliated. The girls are unable to face Aslan. Susan and Lucy manage to remove the muzzle from Aslan's snout, but they're unable to untie the cords that bind his body. Susan and Lucy spend the rest of the night in a miserable days, and they cry until they can cry no longer. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great crackening, a deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken in two, pieced pieces by, by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. See, eventually Susan and Lucy had returned to Aslan's body, and they had seen mice scampering over him. Susan had raised a hand to scare them away when Lucy had noticed that they were actually nibbling at the cords, trying to untie their king. The mice had left as dawn arrived, and Susan and Lucy had walked around aimlessly as the sky brightened, and the girls had looked at Care Paravel when the first ray of gold broke out over the horizon. And it was at that moment that Susan and Lucy heard the deafening crack. They whirled around. They saw the stone table broken in two. Aslan had disappeared. And at that point, Lucy asks if this is more magic. And a voice from behind her answers that it is indeed more magic. Susan and Lucy whirl around again to see Aslan alive. We've got a picture of him here. And Susan and Lucy rush to Aslan as Susan asks him if Aslan is a ghost. And Aslan alleviates their fears with a warm breath. And to answer their question, Aslan explains that the witch was right. That the deep magic had decreed that all traitors' lives are forfeit to the witch. But that if the witch had looked back before the dawn of time, she would have learned that when a willing, innocent victim is killed by a traitor... The stone table will crack, and death itself shall be reversed. Friends, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he roars. But the lion of the tribe of Judah laid down his life for you. When we were traitors, he sacrificed everything in order to capture your heart with his justice, with his mercy, and with his self-sacrificial love that you would become a community, a family of God defined by self-sacrificial love for the weakest among you. It is the purpose of God in Christ. It is the reason he came and it is the church that he came to create. Let us pray. 
Oh, Father, you are the one who sent your Son into the world to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah to save us and set us free. You are the one who sacrificed your life that we might live, and we bless